We're going to attempt today to do Stephen's sermon. It's, it's funny to me, I looked at it, and you see how this is laying out. And um, obviously this was not a problem <laughs> today to have five baptisms in the testimonies. And I remember looking at it, though, and going, God, isn't this ironic? We're, this is going to take up a good part of the service. And this is the longest passage of Scripture that we will probably ever preach on um, in the course of a book, other than when we did Route 66. So, to try to figure out how to do 53 verses of sermon, Stephen's sermon. So what we're going to do is, uh, we're going to start into it today, and, and, and hit the main points of it. And uh, the beauty of the way we're going through this is uh, it'll have a lot of connections with next week anyway. So we'll just allow the Spirit to guide us in what we're going to talk about today. Uh, this sermon, it could be uh, compared to, you know, like the, the windows on your computer. You know, you start clicking on the window, and you get to the next window, and and you go another, now you're like three or four or five, six files deep. And if you're like me, you kind of forget how lost you are in, in the windows. And you got to get back up to the main one. Stephen's sermon is kind of like that. And uh, you could keep on clicking on these windows. And we could go and we could look at every single nuance of every single example that he uses and really unpack them. But time does not allow us to do that. So we're going to stay within the first couple of clicks uh, today and just get an overview and, and address the main points here. Let me pray for us as we begin. God, thank you. For these words of our brother, Stephen, spoken so boldly so many years ago, addressing a people with hard hearts, stiff necks, stubbornness. God, if we're honest, that's us. So God, I pray this morning that you would take your word through your spirit. In the time that we have, God, we would highlight the things that your spirit desires us to highlight, to challenge us, to exhort us, to convict us, so that we could leave here transformed, uh, uh, as Melinda was saying a few minutes ago, God, uh, transformed by your powerful word. Again, not simply for our own selves, God but so that we can leave here better equipped to serve you and bring glory to God. So we ask these things for the furtherance of the glory of the name of Jesus, for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Statement uttered uh, years ago, Winston Churchill is one of many who have said this in, in some way, shape, or form. Well-known statement of his, though. Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What Stephen is doing here is he's walking Israel through a history lesson. He's walking them through their own history, demonstrating to them over the years what has characterized their own response to God and God's truth and the prophets. And his desire is that they learn from that and that they change the way they've been responding to God because ultimately they've rejected Jesus followed that pattern that Israel has had over the years of rejecting God's deliverers and people of God has sent to speak God's truth to them. And he wants their eyes to be open. He wants them to learn from that so that they don't become like all those other people in their history who have opposed God and his truth. So let's unpack this sermon in a little bit. Now, like I said, uh, we could go in a lot of detail. But I think there's really three statements that we can make, three main things that kind of summarize the basic premise of Stephen's uh, message, his speech here in Acts 7. First of all, this. 
God has been sovereignly involved in Israel's history long before the temple ever existed. And that's going to be crucial here in a minute. Long before the temple ever existed. God cannot be put in a box or contained to one location. This is part of the problem here that he's addressing. These people are refusing to see who Jesus is because they can't get past their worship of the temple that is supposed to point to Jesus. They've elevated to the temple to a place it's not supposed to be elevated to. And, uh, and they're missing the point as far as who Jesus is. What Stephen is doing is he's walking them back through their history and saying, listen, God doesn't need the temple. God hasn't always used the temple. Your history is evidence of the fact that God speaks and God manifests his presence in other places and in other ways. It's one of the themes. Secondly, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The prophet that Moses predicted. This was another one of their challenges against him, right? You're speaking, you're blaspheming against Moses and the law. And as we'll see here in a minute, Stephen, throughout this speech, actually does just the opposite. Stephen actually exalts the law in the way he talks about it. And he comes to this conclusion that I'm not the one who has blasphemed the law. A correct understanding of the law will understand that it points to Jesus. I get the law. You are the ones who do not get the law. He says that at the end. And as we'll see, that doesn't go over really well with them. And then the third thing, and this is where he drives it all home here at the end, he takes these two things. God has always been working among you. God has always been speaking to you through his law. Fact of the matter is, throughout your history, you have consistently rebelled against God in his work, the voice of his prophets. When God has showed up, you have ignored him. This is who you have been. And where he's going with this is that you are doing it again as you have rejected Jesus. This is Stephen's speech in Acts 7 in a nutshell. He unfolds these points through these snapshots of Israel's history. So you're going to see these kind of weave throughout these snapshots. And I just want to walk through them here as quickly as we can this morning. So the first snapshot that he uses is Abraham. Abraham. He talks about Abraham, and he says this, Abraham appeared, I'm sorry, God appeared to Abraham um, in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This was far away from Jerusalem, right? So you see right away here, Stephen starting to, to make his arguments. God appeared to Abraham way east of here, Mesopotamia. That's a long way away from here. And no Luke's, Luke's terminology here. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. That terminology, God of glory, what would they have attributed God's glory to? Th- that, the temple, right? The holy of holy. God's glory dwells here. And Stephen is saying, no, God's glory doesn't need this place. God's glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia Years ago, God's glory is not limited to this place. Historically and now, God manifests his glory outside of the temple. 
right? Look how God manifests his glory. Stephen walks through this. That God is living and active outside of just the temple. In verse 4 of Acts 7, God removed or he moved Abraham. In verse 5, God promised to Abraham. In verse 6, God spoke to Abraham. In verse 7, we're told that God will judge. In verse 8, he gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. So Stephen's fighting this mindset that God is only here. Get God out of your box. Understand that God shows up in other places. I remember this so vividly when I went to the Ukraine back in 1992 and was there. And, of course, you've been programmed to think a certain way if you grew up during the 80s and 90s and, and, and thinking of the Soviets as, as these, these uh, atheistic people who hated God and persecuted. You know, and, uh, and, and you're kind of going over a little bit of this, like, man, we're going to go and we're going to show them God and we're going to show them what Christianity looks like and show them Jesus. And I was so struck when we got there, meeting these believers. And, like, I think God's already been here. I remember Sasha one of our translators, Sasha, had been a Bible runner for years, smuggling Bibles over the border into the Soviet Union. I remember, I'll never forget, we were standing outside a church one, one night, and it was a group of teenagers there, and I remember, I'll never forget, this girl in a green dress, and she stood there, and we were singing together, Jesus' name above all names, and we're singing it in English, they're singing it in Russian, Slava Boga, hearing this and just being struck, man, God, God has been here. These people love, you saw God there. You know, if God was into graffiti on the side of that church, it would have said God was here, you know, and uh, struck by that. That's the point that he's trying to awaken the Jews to. God has been here. God has been working. Your temple, your current time, God's not limited to this. Abraham's response becomes the example that I believe Stephen wants them to follow as they hear him walk through their history, right? Abraham believed God's promises and he acted on them. It says here, he went out. He's the antithesis of Israel. Stephen goes on and unpacks how when Abraham gets to the promised land, there's no inheritance there. There's not even a foot of inheritance there for him. In fact, it's the opposite. When he gets there, what happens when he gets there? There's a famine, and Myra wasn't open, right? There's a famine. I mean, if that's me, I'm like walking all this distance, packing up my family and my home, going to Haran, staying there for a little bit, and God says, move again, and I get there. Okay, wow, look at this land. Isn't this great? And there's a famine. If it's me, I'm like, oh, God, this is great. This place stinks. <laughs> like, why did you bring me here? Abraham continues to have faith. It becomes paradigmatic. This is what you're supposed to be like, Israel. Abraham, look at his faith. So Abraham is the first snapshot. The next one is Joseph and the 12 patriarchs. Again, you see God's glory being manifest to Joseph. You see God's actions with Joseph. In verse 9, we see that he is with Joseph. In verse 10, we see that God rescues Joseph from all his afflictions. He gave Joseph favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, which resulted in him being made ruler over Egypt. In verse 10, Joseph's position results in his family being saved and then multiplying while they're in Egypt. So here in this second snapshot, again, this is significant. So now Stephen's painting this picture that God is active and working in Mesopotamia. And guess what? God is active and was working in Egypt 
both far away from the temple, both in the Jewish mind, pagan, wicked places, God is there manifesting his glory. Here's where it starts to take a turn. Here's where Stephen starts to start jabbing a little bit at them. Joseph is rejected by the patriarchs. Joseph is rejected by his brothers. Note that God was with the one who was being rejected. The patriarchs, the sons, rejected the one that God was with. Sound familiar? He's making a parallel. Stephen is greasing the skids here. Israel has had a history of missing the point and stubbornly rejecting the one whom God's favor is with. Joseph is a savior figure in Israel's history. He's a means of deliverance. This is the theme that emerges regarding Israel and their deliverers, one of constant rebellion and rejection. Here's another not-so-subtle shot, I think, by Stephen. What does he say is the motivation behind the patriarch's rejection of Joseph? Jealousy. Does that sound familiar? Has Luke written about jealousy coming into play with the rejection of Jesus? The religious leaders are motivated by jealousy. They're motivated here in Acts by jealousy. Luke is making parallels for us. Stephen is making parallels. You've rejected because of your jealousy. The next snapshot, Moses. This one gets the most ink here in Acts and in Stephen's sermon. See the actions of God with Moses. Again, acting in Egypt. God is sovereign over Moses' upbringing and his education. God speaks to him from the burning bush in verses 30 through 34, verse 35. Note the terminology in verse 33. Take off your shoes, Moses. The place where you're standing is holy ground. The temple is holy ground, right? This was Mount Horeb, a desolate desert wilderness location. See, God could show up anywhere he wants to. God manifests his glory anywhere he wants to. Holy ground is where God shows up. Holy ground is the presence of God. You guys are wanting to limit holy ground to this little cube on a mount in Jerusalem. Guess what? God showed up in the person and work of Jesus. Every place where those footsteps tread was holy ground because God was manifesting himself in the person and work of Jesus and you have missed it. You've rejected this. Look at the terminology in verse 17. This is brilliant. When he's given the example of Egypt... The Israelites in Egypt increased and multiplied. Have we heard that terminology in the book of Acts? Increased and multiplied? Who has increased and multiplied in the book of Acts? The church. The people of God. This is intentional. Jesus. Yes. (laughs) 
More of you need to do that, by the way. I mean, <laughs> the church is parallel. Israel and Egypt, God's people, under the blessing of God, increasing and multiplying. The church and Acts, under the blessing of God, increasing and multiplying. Egypt was the oppressor against those who are increasing and multiplying. What's the implication that Stephen's making right there? It's not pretty. If you're the Jewish hearer of this, and you're starting to make these connections, or the reader of this, right? Wait a minute. (laughs) I think what he's doing, he's equating the Jews with the Egyptian oppressors. Rejecting those who God is with. The rejection theme amps up here in the speech. Moses part of the narrative, which makes sense, right? Moses is a prototype of Christ, we see in verse 37. Stephen's speech is headed towards addressing their rejection of Jesus. Moses, like Jesus, was a rejected deliverer. Look in verse 25. When Moses first intervened, he supposed that they, Israel, would understand, but they did not. Stephen's setting them up here. By demonstrating their tendency to blindly reject one whom God has sent to deliver them. Right? One would suppose, especially with all the signs and wonders that have gone on here, that Israel would understand that Jesus is their deliverer. But once again, like the days of Moses, they've missed it again. Verse 27. Trace through the rejection here that Stephen brings out. They rejected Moses when he intervened between the quarreling Israelites. Who made you a ruler and judge? And it says they thrust him aside. Verse 35, it's stated again, who made you ruler and judge? We continue to see the, uh, the rejection in, in the book of Exodus. In chapter 6, verse 9, after they had been uh, told they had to make bricks without straw, they revolt against Moses again. And then in, in chapter 7, verse 39 to 41, Stephen refers back to the rebellion at Sinai. They refused to obey and demanded that Aaron construct a golden cow. Note the powerful language that's used here in this verse. Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, the deliverer, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So here's the connection for us today. We, in our hearts, are still turning to Egypt. You think about how ridiculous this is. Really? You want to turn back to the place that killed your children? You want to turn back to the place that oppressed you and hated you? But we do this all the time with our sin, don't we? We turn our hearts back to Egypt. I want to hang on to these things. I want that old way, that old habit. I want that back. We turn our hearts to Egypt. We reject the deliverer. God is there in his grace saying, no, I've freed you. Here is salvation. Here is grace. Here is the way of blessing. And we say, I want to go back to Egypt. It's what the Israelites were doing here in Stephen's day. You're missing who Jesus is. Are you running from your deliverer? Stephen kind of telescopes Israel's idolatry from that point on. Starts with the golden calf. 
all the way to the land in exile. He begins in verse 41, right, again, with the golden cow. Check out the terminology in verse 41, by the way. They were celebrating, after they built the golden cow, they were celebrating the work of their hands. They're celebrating the the creation of this cow. Crazy. And that terminology, celebrating, that's the terminology you see throughout the Pentateuch that's used to describe how Israel is to act and worship during their times of feast and festival and celebration. They're appropriating an act that was supposed to be directed towards God in worship, and they're pointing it towards a golden cow. They're rejoicing in this idol. And we often do the same thing. Rejoicing in the things that want to suck our life. Take us away from Jesus. And we betray and reject Jesus just as they did. As a result of their stubborn hearts and their propensity to reject their deliverers, Stephen says God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Moloch. A God of the area there that involves sacrificing their children. That's what they wanted. Raphan, probably a God linked to Egyptian worship of Saturn. This echoes Paul's terminology, his words in Romans 1. What God does sometimes, his, his greatest act of judgment to us, he doesn't have to do much. God's greatest act of judgment to us often is just letting us get what we want. Letting us experience the natural consequences of the sin that we are fighting to hang on to. And God says, okay, that's what you want. That's what he did with Israel. One extra-biblical Jewish wisdom source says this, God allows the worship of irrational and worthless things so that Israel might learn that one is punished by the very things by which they sin. Wow. I turned them over because of their rejection. Voltaire, the uh, atheist, uh, posed God his whole life. This is what he cried out as he was dying. Here's the account. His doctor, his physician, waiting up with Voltaire at his death, said that Voltaire cried out with utter desperation. I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. That's where it leads. You don't want me? Okay. Utter desperation. Brokenness. Where that leads. Rejecting the deliverer. Stephen briefly gives a corrective here on the temple. This is part of Stephen's defense of himself, I guess summarizes his argument about where God dwells. He talks about David and Solomon. God doesn't need the temple. And he points out, he, he quotes, even Solomon, the designer and builder of the temple, even Solomon says back in 1 Kings 8.27, as it's being built, the heavens cannot contain you. Solomon, the builder of the temple, understood its limitations. Right? But these people didn't. They limited God. They put him in their box They were making him into what they wanted him to be, not who he truly was. We do the same thing. God, you need to act according to my agenda. God, you need to do this for me. 
God, you need to be who I define you to be. God doesn't play that game. God's king. Right? The point here, Stephen does answer the charges against him. He just does it in a way, in in an offensive way, not in a defensive way. God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. He, He understands the point, the purpose of the temple. He doesn't degrade the temple. He exalts God. Right? Stephen's not dumb. He knows that God had approved the construction of the temple. He's just saying, you've just done the wrong thing with it. You've appropriated an object that's not supposed to be worshipped to worship. I'm not talking down about the temple. I'm just saying, you've missed who God is. We do the same thing. We appropriate things that shouldn't be worshipped to aspects of worship. And then, I love this, Stephen makes no negative comments about the law. Stephen honors the law. Again, he doesn't come right out, but you see in verse 38, he refers to the law as living oracles. In verse 53, he acknowledges that the law was delivered by angels. In other words, an angel attended the revelation of God. Stephen understood the value of the law. He's not blaspheming the law. He's exalting it. But his point is this. You just don't get the law. You're the ones who are blaspheming the law. If you embrace Jesus Christ, you understand the true point of the law. Right? And then he offers this knockout blow. He takes all of this and he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You ever have a stiff neck? I do. I, everyone, about once a month, they get like right here. It's the exact same place. I don't know, even know what brings it on, but I feel it coming. One of the things I've done is help. Does anyone have one of these things? These are like the best. And what I do when I have this stick neck, I, I, stiff neck, I put this thing right here and I turn it on. Now, let me tell you something. It does not feel good at all. And I turn it up higher and I press it in there and I feel it. And I'm like, you know, when people walking by, like, why are you doing that to yourself? Right? It's painful. It's painful. But my stiff neck needs to be shattered sometimes, right? Sometimes I need that pain applied you know what a stiff neck is? You know what this is, what he's talking about? A stiff neck is the inability to turn my head and look in another direction. And I need God to forcefully, sometimes painfully, break it up and draw my head in another direction, just like Stephen was trying to do here. Stop looking at the temple. Stop worshiping that. Look at Jesus. Stop rejecting your deliverer. Uncircumcised in heart, You know what that implies? It implies that you have an outward facade of religion, but your heart really doesn't belong to God. Always resisting. We'll unpack this a little bit more next week. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. I want us to think about those things as they come up. Let me just ask you a couple questions of application. He throws the final haymaker in verse 53. You're the ones, not me, who've rejected the law. So I just want to ask this question again. Are you stiff-necked? What areas are you stiff-necked in? What areas are you pushing your deliverer away? And what areas are you pushing the messengers away who are speaking God's truth to you? What is your temple? What is your idol? Now another point of application. God shows up. Right? His presence and work isn't limited to the temple. His work isn't limited to this room. Or to this church, God is going to show up in your world. There's going to be holy ground spots. The question is, are you going to show up at those spots? Right? 
God is everywhere operating. School, university, work, field, Washington, D.C., Hollywood, Disney. God's at work. Are you going to show up? I remember Kathy, a few months back, took Tyler to a, uh, an appointment. I was seeing the doctor there. And they did some, some testing on him. And Kathy was talking. And in the course of that, those conversations came up. She's a pastor's wife, Christian. Right? We get back to the exam room. The doctor closes the door to the exam room and starts crying. Breaks down crying. He says, I'm a follower of Jesus. She says, it's so hard. It's so hard. Here, be strong in my faith. And God just sent you today and encouraged me. You know, that was holy ground. I appreciate my wife showing up in that instance. And showing God that space, holy ground. I encourage you to be Abraham and not Israel. Right? Abraham had no inheritance, yet he stayed faithful. Israel had to wait a few extra hours for Moses, and they said, we're done, make us a cow. And lastly, I want you to continue to be challenged. We talked about this last week, but be challenged by Stephen. Stephen knows the story. How well do you know it? Stephen quotes at least portions of 22 verses from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Amos. He uses the scriptures in a powerful way. His deep knowledge of God's word enables him to see untruth in his world and speak against it. Continue to strive for that as well.